sonnet sung by flaming tongues above I praise the mountain fixed um, but I'm telling you this this passage is incredible um, for us let's go ahead and go to first Peter 4 um, I would like to give you an update on <laughs> my backyard project um, so if you haven't been with us Last week, I have decided that I'm going to reseed my backyard, and I am not good at anything related to this making things look better than they are. And uh, so, you know, I went and bought the grass seed and bought the stuff, and I was getting excited to go to go do this. And I mentioned last week that one of the first things I did was go ask my dad for help. And I told you that one of the things we're going to try to learn in, in my backyard experience, since it's a collective for all of us to experience, um, that... I was going to try to learn what ministry was like, because ministry is a lot more like farming than it is about, you know, like a business that we're running. We, we put the hard work in, and we pray for God to bring the growth. So I started the work this weekend. Um, I will let you know, Courtney is on her way back from Florida. She's been gone all weekend, so I had plenty of time to uh, work on this yard. And I realized something very quickly when I got out there. Dad was with me, had my garden tool with me, and I was ready to look at this yard. And there was, you know, weeds everywhere, and I realized something that I actually had to do the work. It was crazy. Like, I was, I was Googling these things. I was excited. I had this dream what the yard was going to look like. And then I got out there and I realized, oh, man, like, I don't just put these seeds in and then all of a sudden, like, grass is everywhere. Um, and I've been taking before and after pictures, so at some point I'm going to show you an entire progression of it. But, but the ministry lesson for us today, I think, um, and with that, is understanding that at some point we actually do have to do the work. <laughs> it's kind of funny, right? Like God does give the growth and, and we ask for his help and we go at it. But ultimately, if we're going to go into a kingdom building mindset on campus, and especially as, we, as you all leverage your summers for the kingdom and go into next fall, we've got to actually put in the work. And one of the ways that we are going to be able to do that is this Sunday night at 6 o'clock p.m. I should have a slide for it, I think. Um, Anthony, I'm not sure if it's back there, but that is the uh, student serve team meeting, um, and basically what that is, is that is our leadership team, um, that is you saying that you want to do your campus ministry work through Campus Collective, and this is where you're going to get resources, a strategy for the fall, basically kind of get us all on the same page so that we can get ready um, to launch going into WOW Week and, and those kind of things coming up. So please mark your calendars. That's something you want to be a part of. Notice, anyone interested is encouraged to attend. So you can come, find out what the expectations are, then say, that sounds horrible, I don't want to do that. Um, or you can say, I want to I roll with you guys. So that is this Sunday at 6 o'clock. Um, so let's get, let's get to our text. Um, as I always want to remind you, as we go into every passage of 1 Peter, he seems, the Lord through this text, seems to be using a lot of words to remind you of who you are. We've said this over and over again, but if we are going to do good, effective ministry in this broken world, if we are going to suffer well, we have to remember that we are elect exiles, right? Elect meaning chosen, exile meaning you're not home yet, and Peter is saying, look, you're going to have to understand, life is going to be hard in this broken world, but you have to go proclaim the gospel to it, and for you to do that well, you have to remember, you are chosen, and you are not home yet. And if chosen, if God is really sovereign over our salvation, that means he's sovereign over every little detail of your sanctification, which means every hard thing, every good thing, everything in your life is being worked out to make you more like Jesus and ultimately give you more joy. 
That's the point. You want to know who you are? You're an elect exile. And listen, we don't just become elect exiles to stay and just do elect exile things. We, he says that we are saved to proclaim. And we back this up with our holiness. We back it up with fulfilling our roles in society, with doing good deeds, and even with doing good to those who have done evil to us. But ultimately, the point is, you are this, and because of this, you are to proclaim. You are to actually go do the work. Like, please don't forget the testimony we heard tonight. Like, realize, we have been praying for Kai, a person who literally is Buddhist, was. God sovereignly works it out to where she's at Marshall, puts Morgan at a random two-hour-a-week job, two hours a week, Okay, happens to intersect with a student from, v- from Vietnam that says, I would love to keep hearing stories about Jesus. Morgan tells people, we pray, she keeps wanting to hear this story over and over again, and wouldn't you believe it, on Easter, Resurrection Sunday, Kai gets saved. Like, don't let that just be a cliche. You realize that if Kai would have gone her entire time at Marshall, never met a Christian who would share the gospel with her, she may very well go back to Vietnam and die in her Buddhist family. That's the reality of this. This is not cliche. This is real hard work. We don't look at the thorny weeds of the darkness of the world and decide, you know, let's just Google a lot of things, of ways of how it should be, argue about the ways that we should do it, and forget that you actually have to get out the tools and go do the work. So I'm fired up. I, uh, man, this is a question. Zach uh, and I have been texting about this some the past couple days, and I just want to challenge this with you all before we actually look at verse 1. Um, the last two weeks, I have ran into two people who I know at one point in their life loved God and were faithfully serving him. I'm talking just like you guys, in church, doing ministry, evangelizing. I can, this one person in particular, I've seen the Lord save more people through her ministry than anyone else. And one of them literally texted a group of us that we kind of all used to hang out like four or five years ago. And she said, that she understands that she probably should be living with God and not in sin. But since she has not lived with God, her life is better. Literally, she evangelizes. I mean, she was like, you want someone in your ministry team, she is it. And I read that text a couple days ago. I've just realized that my life is better without God. Literally, I know, and please don't hate me, but I just don't want to. I know that I should follow God, but I don't want to because life is actually better. Another guy, same kind of strain of thought. He was talking, and we're, we're wrestling about prayer, and like he's not seeing any joy in his life. And he says, you know, I've just found out that when I don't pray, things work out better. Now, why do I bring that up? Because I've been convicted, wondering, is my life actually better because I follow Jesus? Do we offer something, not just to try to make people feel good and like manipulate emotions, I'm talking about that, but do we offer something in our walk with Christ that we can actually say, no sister, no brother, you're mistaken, it's actually better this way, which brought me thinking, I got really convicted and started going on this rabbit trail in my soul, and I wondered this, could my life be lived by a non-Christian? Like, could an unregenerate person walk in my shoes for a week and not be miserable? <laughs> or another way of asking, would our life make sense apart from the Holy Spirit's work? 
Do the things you do just look like everyone else? Or are we inconveniencing ourselves for the sake of others? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we joyfully worshiping the Lord? That's, that's bugging me. I'm serious. Like, I almost could just like sit and we could just pray it out and leave, go enjoy the weather. Because I'm bothered. Like, you all are some of the best evangelists I've ever seen. You guys have motivated me to share my faith more than I've ever seen. And this girl beats all of you. Know that. She had a life of, of drugs and a life of you know, this craziness in her family. It was unbelievably rescued. I saw it in my own eyes. Personality was fundamentally changed. If you've ever seen anybody get saved, it's her. And she immediately shares the gospel. I've seen just the Lord like, like oh, wow, oh, that person got saved? Whoa, really? That person? I mean, unbelievable. And now she can say confidently, I would rather just not follow God because life is better without him. Why do I bring all this up? Because if we are really going to live a life that is going to change and push back the darkness, we have to follow Jesus in a way that actually looks like what the text is trying to do in us. you believe that? Like there actually is abundant life, there actually is joy, there actually is peace, there actually is no guilt, no shame for past sins, there actually is a mission, a bigger purpose that we can go after. Do we believe it? Now listen, don't answer it. I just want you to just look at your life. Say, do I believe I want to remind you who you worship today. We worship Jesus. 1 Peter 3.22, right before verse 1, says this. This is talking about Jesus. Who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The man, the God-man that we claim to worship right now is in heaven. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's at the right hand of God, defeating all of the enemies of his, working his mission and using us to advance his kingdom. But he's also at the right hand of God interceding for us. Every sin you commit is covered by his blood. He's our advocate representing us to the Father. Notice this. Every power is subject to him. He's a king. Do we realize this? Like, Jesus right now, don't just think like him and Israel being a man. Yes, that's helpful to look to his example. Think about right now, in the heavens, ruling, reigning, executing his mission through us. He only wants good for us, meaning every dark moment, even these times in my soul right now where I'm thinking, wow, I don't know if my life is better because of the things that I'm doing to experience his grace. He's working all of this for our good and for his glory. This is the Jesus that we worship which sets us up for verse 1. Let's look at it. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Take this apart chunk by chunk here. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. So don't gloss over that, okay? That's... That's a reality that means something to us. He's about to make a point. The commands he's about to give you are dependent on the fact that Jesus actually suffered. He actually was here. I want us to take time to really feel the sting of this. Because if we're going to actually live out the mission, and we're going to actually be who we are as elect exiles, we have to realize, feel the weight of the fact that Christ actually did suffer in the flesh. So think, just as he is right now in heaven... He has always been, before he came to earth, highly exalted, 
the King of kings, Lord of lords, eternally somehow existing before time began, forever backwards, God the Son, full of joy, but desires to accomplish His Father's will, to reconcile us back to Him so much. He's saying, you know what, I'll give it all up. I'm not going to stop being God, but I will not count my Godness as something to be grasped. I'm going to come and put on flesh, and I'm going to suffer here on earth. So he felt pain, felt abandonment, he felt hungry, thirsty, experiences all the temptations of this world, and he did all of this, listen, because he loves God, and because he loves you. Jesus had to put on flesh so that he could fulfill the righteous requirement needed to have a life pleasing to God. But he also needed to put on flesh so he could actually take the penalty for all of us not living that life. He also had to put on flesh so he could understand, sympathize with our weaknesses as humans. But this Savior also had to be God so that he could actually be perfect, first of all, but also be able to bear all the wrath of God against sin on him and overcome death. These are all true things that we must understand. He actually came in this world to live out the will of God. And what was that will of God? He could have had a will to do anything. He could have glorified himself by himself, forever, but decided to make this, create you, and work a plan to redeem you. And that involved a perfect, sinless man feeling all of the pain of this world. He lived out the will of God. Listen, don't miss this. He lived out the will of God with full joy and full confidence and full faith, and he still suffered. It's the way it goes for us in this age. You can live it out, full of joy, actually have that joy, actually have that peace, but it's still going to mean suffering. We have to start asking ourselves, does our life make sense to non-Christians, but also do we actually have a joy that will sustain us through suffering, or when the tough things come, are we done? So because of that, Peter says this, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So there's an active arming of ourselves. If you arm yourself with a weapon, you actually put it on your person and are ready to use it when the fight comes, right? Like, the burglar, burglar comes in, and he's wanting to rob us of our loot. And, and I say, stop, I'm armed. He's like, okay, and I have no gun on me. Does the burglar, and also Luke and Nate aren't here too, does the burglar get away? Yes, because there's an arming that happens. So it's not just a agree that Jesus actually suffered, it's an arming saying, this is going to be a part of me. I'm going to know that he suffered. I'm going to know that if I'm going to live out his footsteps, that means hard things are coming for me, but it also means a joy that will sustain me. So when the fight of the kingdom of darkness comes, arm yourselves knowing Jesus suffered in the flesh. This mindset will help you make sense of the world. Look at this. He keeps going. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, so Jesus suffered you should think like that because whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So a reason why we should arm ourselves in this way of thinking is because if you are a person who has suffered in the flesh, you are a person who has ceased, stopped, quit from sin. Now, don't get weird on me. We take that one verse out and run away with it. It's going to mean all kinds of things. Here's what it can't mean. It can't mean that you have to suffer in order to not sin. You see that? Like, 
It can't, can't mean that. It also can't mean that it is possible to completely cease from sinning. Because if you read that straight up by itself, whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So all of us that have experienced any sort of suffering, that must mean that we have never sinned after that. Can't mean that. Here's, uh, here's the principle. If you've chosen a life of following Christ, that means you are choosing a life to suffer in this world. If you've chosen that, that means you have chosen to live a life ceasing from sin, making a decisive, clean break. I'm done with that because even though it does mean sorrowful joyfulness following Jesus, he's better than that. And that's really where my friends are at right now, right? Like some of them are like, I don't want to cease from sin. Whatever, you know, whatever it was for them about following Jesus, they didn't want to keep going that way. For us, we continually choose Christ and subsequently choose suffering as we continually choose to not sin. The big point here, don't just try to avoid mistakes. You cease from sin by choosing to love, honor, trust, and obey Jesus. He keeps compounding the argument. Look, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, so we keep doing this, here's why, so that the rest of the time in the flesh is no longer for human passions but for the will of God. That's what this looks like. You want to choose Jesus in suffering and stop choosing sin. What it looks like is no longer living your life for human passions. And listen, don't just go to big sins here, okay? Don't just think, okay, the passion to not, like for me, you know, the passion to not cheat on Courtney. Okay, that's not, that's not the, like, don't go big. Think in your own life, your own passion for pride, your own passion for people to want to like you over the acceptance of God. Don't just go big sin. Start thinking in your heart. Do you live for the passion and the will of God or do you live for the passions of your flesh? Because you deciding to follow Jesus is deciding to decide, and that's a lot, that his will is more important than your passions. And here's the tough part. That should hardly be a sacrifice us. We believe all the things the word says about a joy in following Christ and the peace that comes and the freedom from shame and guilt and sin and hell and the devil and the enemy and we just have life and life abundantly then it shouldn't actually feel like a sacrifice, right? Someone said have perfect joy or sin. (laughs) That feels good. Perfect joy. Understand this. His way is best for your joy and good, but it is going to mean tough times and suffering in this life. I think Peter makes it clear a bunch, right? It's where you're headed. So do you still want it? We all know this. Our passions will leave us dead and miserable. His passions leave us full of life, even in suffering. So the suffering is inevitable, but the joy is not. Remember a couple weeks ago, sinful passions waged war against your soul, And we have to fight it with a deeper passion, not just changing our behavior. What do we want? Do we want God's will? Verse 3 breaks down what a life controlled by human passions looks like. For the time, so it's four again, another argument of why you should live for the will of God, not for your own passions. Here's why. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So one reason we as the people of God stop living out these behaviors 
is because the time is suffice. I love that. Basically, Peter's like, look, time's up for that, Christians. And like, you're, you're probably looking at that list and you're thinking a few of those stand out as being a little odd. Right? Did he really just say that? But I want you to see, even the church he was writing to, listen, these are like Christians that like suffered for their faith and kept persevering, are capable of these kinds of things. It's weird to think about, right? Like you think about first century church suffering and persevering, and then Peter's got to tell them not to have orgies. I'm not trying to be cute. We're capable of these sins, and I love the mercy of God. Basically just says, listen, the time is up. That's enough for us. And even if one of these specific sins doesn't land on you, know that every believer can figure out where you're compromising here. And I'm telling you, with all the mercy of God, listen, just stop. (laughs) Not stop to get saved. You're saved by grace. But in this moment, if there's a way you're compromising, in a way that fulfills your passions and not the will of God, listen, no condemnation. There is a time right now when you can decide it is over. I'm done with that. I'm going the other way. And Jesus is going to keep bringing it up. You say, okay, let's do it. His mercy is here. You actually can say that's enough. And listen, for people who don't follow Jesus, you can say time is up too. Like a room this big? I know there's people maybe that don't follow Christ in here. Maybe just playing. All of these sins, and listen, there are some gross ones in this, aren't actually serving your joy. And if we're all honest, we know that sin always leaves us unsatisfied. If you go back to that one addicting sin and you fail, it always seems like it's the right decision in the moment, but then it leaves you dirty, guilty, shameful. It never serves your joy. I love this. You can say, time's up. The past has sufficed for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Look at verse 4 and 5. With respect to this, so the things, that, that list of things, they are surprised, they are Gentiles, meaning non-Christian, usually in the New Testament. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same blood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So speaking of this crazy sin list that happens when people follow their own passions, or maybe worse and more deceptive, try to find their own truth in themselves to guide their moral lives. Like, first of all, just realize he calls these a flood of debauchery. Like, that's pretty poetic for describing sin. Like, our passions overflowing a flood of debauchery. And Peter's making this point. People who do not follow Jesus may malign you. What does malign mean? Be super critical against you in a negative way. And it's just time to accept that reality. But notice, here's why they won't malign you. This is important. Because they are surprised that you don't join them anymore. You don't do what they do anymore. And then clearly the surprise turns into anger and then they're maligning you. Maybe they fear that you will judge them or they know that they're wrong. I'm not sure of why this happens. But there's a really big missional point for us in all this. Other than the fact, just know that following Jesus might get you maligned. But I love this, because this verse assumes that you are close enough to sinners for these people to malign you, (laughs) right? Like, most people aren't just kind of maligning people, like, long distance, like, look at that Christian over there, I'm critical against you. They're maligning people they know. So this verse assumes that you are close to them, because our holiness actually draws us to sinners in love, not away into our Christian safe spaces, 
But this verse also assumes that they will be surprised when you do not participate. Man, get that. Like, especially in college. Wow. It is not a godly thing to compromise your own holiness to make people feel more comfortable. It's not. It's kind of a popular thing right now in missional living to kind of make sure our life looks as much like the world as we can so that we can, you know, win them to Christ. And don't hear me say that and think, okay, I can't watch that movie anymore or listen to that music. What I'm saying are these explicit ways that we look exactly like the world in our sins. And Peter is saying, listen, they should be surprised when you don't do it anymore. You're close enough to be maligned, but you understand your holiness in a way that they're going to be surprised that you don't do it. Jesus did both of these perfectly, by the way. Jesus was the holiest man to ever live, and he spent all his time with people, people who thought, you know, society thought they were the grossest. His holiness drove them to the people, but also he called them to repentance. His holiness did not ever compromise. And I love this encouragement, too. When they malign you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Big brother Jesus has our back. <laughs> Go in, understand it's going to be hard, but they're going to have to give an account to Jesus. Look at verse 6, another encouragement. I love this. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Bookmark that. That sounds wrong. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, I know that literally just said that this is why the gospel is preached to dead people. Now, I'm going to kind of put some extra grammar in here so so you can understand exactly what is being taught. Another way of looking at this is that this is why the gospel was preached to those of you who are now dead. Does that make sense? It's not just like they didn't go to the graveyard and start preaching to the dead people. He's saying some of you have died, like some of you were maligned, but they didn't just malign you, they murdered you. So this is why it was preached even to those of you that have died, because I need you to know that even though the, the maligning looked like it won, even though the darkness looked like it won, even though the persecution looked like it won, you need to know those people are alive in the Spirit. So the gospel is still preached so that even though people die, we can know they are living with God and with Him now. It's another encouragement for you to keep going. So here's your encouragement. Even if they kill you, you will live. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Man, this argument is interesting, right? It's just know that they will be judged, and even if they kill you, you'll be alive, and then know that all of this will soon be over. The end of all things. Jesus is coming back. That means all suffering will be gone, all sin will be gone, all ministries will be over. Our mission will be over. This should be motivating us to go. It should kill the enticement of sin in us. It should get us excited. This should give us hope. The fullness of the kingdom of God, full joy forever, is actually coming. The end of all things is at hand. And I love this. Because of that, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, so the reason reason for these commands is because the end of all things is coming. It doesn't say you should kind of shrink back and just let them come. It says we should be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled, focusing on the things that matter, able to say no to things that don't. Sober-minded, a true thinking of how the world is. 
understanding things from God's perspective, including when you are wronged and when you suffer, not getting caught up in silly ministry drama or tension. There are more important things to think about. The end is near. It's interesting too, right? Be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. Jesus is coming back. Why? For the sake of your prayers. A person is self-controlled who is self-controlled and sober-minded will be a person ready to pray. And it's a good diagnostic for us. If you're in a dry season of prayer, ask yourself right now, do I exercise self-control in my life? Or am I sober-minded? Or am I distracted by a million other things? Normally that's why, right? Like if you aren't praying, it's probably because you have a hard time saying yes to the right things. Or you have a hard time thinking. This is me too, y'all. I'm not just like, I know I'm kind of yelling today, but it's all of us. Let's beg the Lord for self-control and sober-mindedness. And listen, these aren't personality traits. It's kind of easy to think I'm just a person that doesn't have self-control. It's ridiculous. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that's purchased for us by Jesus and given to us by His Spirit. We need to pray more. Our mission depends on it. Let's get self-controlled. Let's get sober-minded. It's not so God accepts us more, but so that we can pray and live and see more people like Kai come to know Jesus. The end is near. Like, y'all believe that? This could be the last sermon you hear. Sunday could have been the last Easter that you're with your church family. I love the response. is isn't to, like, freak out and try to do a million other ministry programs. The result is pray. Because the fact of the matter is, is that God can do 10 million things while you pray for five minutes than you can do in 10 years. And if you really believe that, you'll pray more. Eight and nine. Above all. So somehow, all these important things, Peter's like, listen, even above that, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So loving one another earnestly implies a continuation, kind of a I'm going to love you no matter what attitude, especially in suffering. Earnestly implies there's a realness to it, not a superficial niceness. It's a love that gets in each other's business, calls out sin, offers grace, walks arm in arm together for the kingdom of God. And here's why. Because a lot of love covers a multitude of sins. And this is actually backed in a proverb. It's kind of cool. Proverbs uh, 10, 12. You'll turn that. It's up here. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Now, to cover here actually means to forgive. Um, this doesn't mean like, if you love me, you just act like they don't sin. That's not, clearly we know from the Bible, that's not what it is. Um, these commands are showing us that a way of loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is to love each other in a way that doesn't, listen, doesn't bring up every little sin against each other. There's grace for those. And listen, don't hear me say, you know, we shouldn't call sin, sin, just let each other stray. I'm not saying that. But it does mean that we should love each other enough to forgive in the moment and quickly, not to stir up strife with every mistake someone makes. Like, imagine us as this group, 30 or 40 of us, going into the fall and the years to come as a people who cover each other's sins and forgive each other's sins quickly with love. Wouldn't you want to be a part of that? Like, it's not a place that's just kind of watching you with a magnifying glass. The moment you mess up, it's just... Oh, they don't even love the Lord. 
place, no, we're going to forgive there. We're going to confront when we need to. We're going to forgive that because our love for each other is going to cover this. We're going to be a place that's covered in love. Hear me on this. We need to be people who don't gossip. This proverb implies that if you hate someone, you will stir up strife about them. We should be slow to convict our brothers and sisters in Christ. And listen, you should assume the best about your brothers and sisters in Christ. You really should. Not saying they're incapable of sinning. Don't hear me say that. What I'm saying is, you know they have the Holy Spirit in them and they love Jesus. You should assume the best about them. Um, print practical ways to do this. Ignore gossip unless it comes directly from a person. Like someone comes up to you and says, this person said this about you. Say, okay, I'd love to talk to them, right? Uh, here's one you can write down too. I know this is kind of topical here, but I think this is important. I've had to experience this a lot in the last couple years. Um, a really incredible question to be able to ask is, let's say someone comes up to me and says, did you hear that so-and-so was doing this? Here's a question for you. Always ask this. Before you say, oh, no, really? Like, let's go confront them. Say, how did they respond when you called them to repent? Do that. What that does, first of all, it kills gossip, okay? And also it challenges that person to help them grow and know, look, if that person is sinning, you're, the way you love them is not to go stir up strife. The way you love them is to go cover that offense in forgiveness. Seriously, know that. Like, student serve team, we're not going to have this, okay? No one's coming to me and saying, this person's doing this, and if you go and know, you can go and just say it to yourself if you want. How did they respond when you called them to repentance? Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, this is the last two for us tonight. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. A few things here, then we'll sing and um, enjoy each other's presence. Being a good steward of God's grace is to use any gift he has given you to, listen, serve others. God gave you no gift to help you build a platform. God gave you gifts to serve. So God's uniquely made all of us with talents and special ways of thinking and differing personalities to reach other people. And the way you're built and the passions you have is going to help you on your mission. But when God saves you, he gives you a gift. Serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leadership, mercy, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, name a few. But whenever he remade you in Christ, he gave you gifts to build up his church. He expects you to serve. And listen, all of this is done through the power of God. Notice this. As one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order, here's why we do it in God's strength, in order that everything and everything God may be glorified. So, Kelly, you want to come on up here. I just want to leave you with this before we sing. In your serving, here's how you can do this in God's power. Admit you can't do it without him. Pray for help. Trust him to help. Actually get out the yard tools and do the work and thank God for the results. Why do we do this? So that he actually gets all of the glory. And the final question, why do we want him to get the glory? Because 
to him belongs the glory, dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask right now that you would calm our hearts, you would slow us down so that we can focus on things that actually matter. Uh, Lord, we do not pray enough, we do not serve enough, we do not love enough, and Lord, we don't say these things to build up guilt in our soul because we know you love us, you love us the same, even if we never served again, Lord, we say these things because we want to experience more joy in you. It's what we want, God. We're so desperate, we're so tired of living lives that look like cleaned up Gentiles. God, would you do a work in this group? Would you... Gosh, give us self-control, give us sober-mindedness, Lord. Let us be a people who work in your strength, all for your glory. So God, do whatever it takes to us to make that true. Whatever suffering, whatever blessing, anything you sovereignly decide to put in our path, Lord, give us the faith to handle it with endurance, ultimately with a joy that would compel people to want what we have in you. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Would you guys stand as we continue to worship? What love could remember no wrongs we have done. All mission, all knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more Praise the Lord, His mercy is more Stronger than darkness Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more.